Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how journalism can help connect with its community better by using humanizing language. My guest is Aubrey Nagel, editor of Reframe at Resolve Philly. Reframe is an initiative that aims to help journalists more fairly and accurately report on misrepresented and excluded communities. In our conversation, we focus on how humanizing language can help all of us elevate humanity, connect with fellow community members, and deprioritize misinformation and false equivalencies. So I'd love to kind of start by diving into when you say humanizing language, what do you mean? The idea of humanizing language for us as a philosophy and reframe has evolved out of the idea of human-centered language and person-first language. Um, you know, historically, methods for rephrasing sentences or noun phrases to underline literally the person in the phrase. So if you're referring to a person, this comes from the disability community. So, you know, instead of saying this person is disabled, you say this person has a disability. And so instead of saying disabled person, where a person is second, you literally flip it so that person is in front. So you're underlining that humanity every step of the way. Um, and that same principle can apply to a ton of different identities, communities that we talk about in news all of the time. Um, and there are many different populations, groups that news talks about frequently in a really dehumanizing way um, by applying labels or um, stigmatizing language that dehumanizes, um, that takes away that humanity and literally refers to people as objects. And the effect of that, uh, of course, is that we as a society stop thinking about them as people. And um, that's, you know, it's a really problematic thing within news that happens way too often. Um, and so for us, humanizing language encompasses all of that, getting away from stigmatizing language, even if it doesn't fit like specifically into the grammatical structure of person first language. Um, so for instance, uh, the terms for folks who have been incarcerated that might be commonly referred to in the news as inmates is a really dehumanizing phrase or word as people who have been incarcerated have said in many essays and um, anecdotally feels like a slur. And so getting away from words like that and refer just referring to somebody that has been incarcerated rather than calling them an inmate or is incarcerated, whatever um, the proper uh, sentence structure might be. It's really like just reworking our grammar to get away from labels and stigmatizing language. So that's kind of the philosophy that we have around humanizing language. That's great. And it's also, I mean, as you're talking, uh, I'm thinking about when we say someone is disabled, the assumption is that's all they are. Or when you say someone's an inmate, the assumption might be that's all they are. And so humanizing language can also remind us, like you say, put the person first. That's part of the the whole milieu of, of who they are as a full human. Yeah, that's really hits the nail on the head that we focus a lot on discussing experiences, something that somebody has experienced rather than defining it as who they are. There are a variety of ways that people refer to themselves and identify. And so part of that humanizing language philosophy for us is always to, when you're speaking with a source, to ask them how they identify whatever it is that you're talking about about them. Um, because, for instance, person-first language, that philosophy is very popular in the um, in many disability communities. It isn't something that all disability communities uh, align themselves with or prefer. So, you know, you really have to ask folks like what their, what their preference is. And that's part of the humanizing language too, is understanding that person-first or flipping a sentence structure to focus on experiences isn't what everybody wants. And so it's really like encompassing the whole philosophy. You talked about when we 
don't use humanizing language, we run the risk of dehumanizing. We run the risk of making us forget that this is actually a person in front of us. They become a thing or an object or a, or a representation of something. How would you describe the consequences of that in our society when we dehumanize, even when we don't mean to, when we use language that could dehumanize? What are the consequences of that? What, where does that lead us? Ooh, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy question because it really leads to a lot of the problems we have in society of not taking care of each other if we don't think of our populations that have been made most vulnerable by our structures and institutions um, that folks are not inherently vulnerable, that they are made vulnerable by the circumstances in which we as a society place them. If we start talking and thinking and thus thinking about them as not people, it is much easier to dismiss their problems and not take care of them. Um, and so that that leads to that just like endless cycle of us not creating the structures of support or providing resources for people who need them most um, and ends up being like a self-justifying structure. If you don't see somebody as human, then you're not going to feel empathy for their plight um, and you'll actually feel justified in ignoring them or or when the um, language of, you know, us versus them is used within politics or organizing um, politically, then you might literally align yourselves as a political party because they are opposing a, a them that you have no longer viewed as human. Um, so it had kind of really disastrous consequences for our like social fabric and our, you know, the, what we owe to each other at that social contract. Um, and really, like in the nitty gritty of it, we know that there's a lot of research on how the use of stigmatizing language really negatively impacts outcomes for certain populations. For instance, um, people who have experienced substance use disorder, or alcohol use disorder, um, when they are referred to as stigmatizing language, um, like addicts or junkie, and when that language is perpetuated throughout society and the healthcare system, then the people who are referred to that way have worse medical outcomes, worse health outcomes. Um, and, and similarly with um, people who've been incarcerated, when we proliferate the use of stigmatizing terms, um, it makes it harder for them to get jobs and they have worse economic outcomes and psychological outcomes. So there's research that backs up a lot of stigmatizing language for certain populations. And so you can you should assume that that harmful language can make that real world harm um, very real for the people that it describes. I don't know about you. I, I'm a little older than you. And, and one of the big things growing up was the the whole sticks and stones can break by bones, but words can never. Even as a kid, I was like, well, that had to come from somewhere because we had to come up with something to protect ourselves because words actually do hurt and, and words do have power. And I, I think what you're talking about to me gets at a lot of the, that words can lead to actual structural systemic outcomes. Um, you talked about worse health outcomes for people who've been um, subjected to stigmatizing language. One of the reasons I do this podcast and want to talk to journalists about language and precision is this idea of the power of words. It's something that we come across a lot in our work with newsrooms, journalists, and just conversations with folks in the in the industry um, that, you know, kind of questioning or defensiveness of, of, oh, this is, you know, this is maybe just semantics or there's always going to be a new word or, you know, worries about political correctness. Um, the euphemism treadmill is very real that, you know, there will always be another word that, you know, falls out of um, style, for lack of a better word. The nature of language is always changing. And that does not mean to me, and certainly for our program, does not mean that we should not care about its impact just because the language does change. It certainly has real world impact. Our philosophy and kind of curriculum with Reframe is based around semiotics and literary theory, um, which the kind that I subscribe to is that structuralism in which the systemic nature of our 
society and the language that we use are very intertwined um, and that the language not only reflects the communities and societies that we build, but also creates them at the same time. You you can't, you know, unlink them. Um, the language that we use does create those realities just as much as it reflects them. And it's hard to, you know, because it's hard to see and it's not as tangible. I understand why uh, some folks might be dismissive, but, you know, we are folks who care about words in journalism and we have to understand their individual impact as well as their, you know, um, summary impact. Yeah, absolutely. One thing you brought up, and I'm so glad you said it because I did want to, is this idea from members of the general public, some journalists themselves about there's always going to be a new word, uh, as you as you said. And and this whole idea of, well, the the stigma is there. If we apply a new word for it, that's just going to take on the stigma as we go. And so I'm wondering if you have anything to say about how you or your organization or how you've seen that being addressed, like like the idea of we have to actually also get at this system and words are a piece of that? Really, all of our teachings, I keep saying philosophy because it really is kind of just like the way we do all of our work. Um, is centered around this idea that, yeah, there is no vocab list that you can have that we can hand you right now that will make you say all the right words. That's not how it works. Um, language is always changing and different contexts, cultural contexts um, make a huge difference. Um, and so what we really focus on are teaching journalists the the power of the words, the structure, how power structures are imbued into our articles, into our stories, into our broadcasts um, through our language. And so that they understand not only which words are, you know, maybe problematic right now, but why. And so that helps you identify language that might be harmful in the future as well, or language, um, not just individual words, but, you know, how how sentences are structured. A phrase that's been, you know, popularly criticized, of course, is like officer-involved shooting. Um, that's not just one word, of course, and each word individually is not a problem, but the way that they are tied together in the way that they are used to be euphemistic and to cover up police misconduct is the problem. And so we really get at that like structural level to kind of overtake the nature of language always changing. Like we just kind of live in that world of like it's going to change. So rather than, you know, provide you the fish of a vocabulary list, you know, we're going to teach you how to fish instead. And we do have tools that that provide um, language guidance for here and now. And but that's just something we're continually updating with community feedback because we know that's that's how it goes. That's what we got to do. Yep, that's true. You know, I, I that, that phrase officer involved shooting when so I was a journalist and now I'm teaching. And when I talk to my students about those phrases, I, I, I also talk about like, that's not a phrase a journalist came up with, you know, like that's that's a phrase that the police department came up with and puts in the news release. And everybody's got their own point of view. So what's your role here is your role is to put that together and parse it. So should you be just like uh, extracting that phrase and dropping it into your into your story or should you be thinking about what does that mean? And that does take extra cognitive space. Um, and in a, in a time when we're lacking resources and when there's this push, it's difficult to make room for that cognitive space, how to resist the siren call of news release language that can frame, you know, in a specific way. The language part is really what I was mostly talking about of this like individual how words work. But the second part about framing is really just that uh, of what you're uh, referring to of understanding where frames come from, why certain parties would frame something a certain way, how that is reflected in language, and how we can pivot away from, you know, taking on the frames of institutions, of people in power and authority, positions of authority, um, and how we can kind of take those back when journalists, you know, for the last century have been adamant about not doing that, but have actually, in fact, been doing that the whole time. 
frankly. And so like understanding why that is happening and where the gaps exist between like what we think we're doing, what we're actually doing is, is yeah, really part of that teaching. Um, And we've also done and are open to doing uh, content analysis with newsrooms. We've done some research in the past year into uh, the framing of the language used in stories in Philadelphia following George Floyd's murder. There are protests here as well. So we did some in-depth research on the framing of those stories to really capture the power dynamics, like what sources were were used most, why were they, you know, mostly the police commissioner, the mayor, um, people in city council versus actual protesters and helping newsrooms kind of grapple with with the bird's eye view of that work, the meta narrative coming away from that work, which is, yeah, like a huge part of of understanding that framing and, and where those narratives are coming from and how they work their way into your journalism. Where would you want newsrooms to sort of focus or take your information and apply that? There are a lot of ways to kind of weave our work into the average newsroom. We created our our workshop and our, uh, you know, consulting around content analysis and also source auditing um, and also the language analysis tool that we're developing. We're also launching a new project this year called Resound that will be a home for community feedback about news coverage um, and really amplify personal narratives about how media has impacted your personal life to build up that evidence base for change. All of these things really hit at different parts of the editorial workflow, which is really how we designed it. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Aubrey Nagel, editor of Reframe at Resolve Philly, about how to center humanity and community connection in news coverage. I encourage any newsroom who wants to just start thinking more deeply about language and framing in their everyday work um, to reach out or take a look at some of our resources online. We've started a new newsletter we're planning to release new news guides that are like language and framing focused for particular um, news topics. Really just changing how you're thinking while you're working. Learning, you know, one little snippet of of something that is really like semiotics or that literary theory. I mean, the reason I work all this into our work is because that changed my brain when I was in college. Like learning those lessons changed how I looked at all content. And so we really believe that behavior change of just learning a little bit will change how you're writing just just understanding that you're going to be tracking your sources later will change how you gather your sources today. Just knowing that you're going to do a content analysis will make you rethink, oh, am I framing this fairly? Obviously, this is, you know, a, it's a tall order for journalists to add another thing to their plate and for newsrooms to add another thing to their plate. But that's why, you know, we really want folks to just bring in the work, start thinking and reading about it as much as they can, um, rather than, you know, perhaps wait for their newsroom to launch a, you know, years long investigation from a third party to like come in and do a huge thing that that they just get the results of later, right? Like we want journalists to be involved in this work themselves, because we think that that is really key to making that behavior change that we're looking for. So yeah, it's it's definitely like a heady, messy, amorphous space, but we just welcome everybody to kind of join the conversation and and start thinking about it with us. When I was a journalist when I was starting out, I came up in a space where I believed wholeheartedly in, yes, and journalists should be objective and we should be neutral and how important that is and our role and our, our responsibility. And, and of course, as I've, you know, had experience in news and of course in academia and started to connect with some of these concepts, there is no view from nowhere. There is no, like, I come from somewhere. We all come from somewhere. I remember... I was already sort of thinking about these, but on a a station I used to work for, there was a story, and I think it was while I was still working there, there was a story about ad blockers. 
the lead was uh, businesses are very upset that ad blockers are becoming so popular. And then the whole story was about how do we deal with ad blockers? And I thought to myself, because I was teaching a class at the time and, and working, and I thought, God, you know, my students would have a totally different headline for that or a totally different lead. They'd be like, ad blockers are the best thing ever. And so I just remember even something as small as that, you know, centering the business voice rather than centering. And this was a local general news outlet wasn't a business outlet. But there's still a lot of resistance. I mean, there, there are a lot of journalists who are still in the space of the idea of I want to be objective and neutral and tell the story as it is. And, and yet we're all biased. But then there's that feeling of if you're introducing the conversation about bias, you're introducing bias. You're introducing, and that's of course not true, but that is a feeling that, I, that I'm getting. I wonder how much you've run into that uh, that dance and and how you are, how you are dancing with that uh, that concept. Oh yeah, I mean we we certainly are in that space where we if we hit resistance, which we're lucky to work with really amazing partners and newsrooms who really want to make a change and they understand yeah exactly that that question of we're hearing our communities, we're hearing the industry saying that like the old habits of you know this false notion of objectivity that is not really possible is. And the striving for that is damaging our relationship with our communities. We hear that. We just don't really know where to start. Uh, but there are certainly, you know, um, uh, people who don't and journalists who don't believe that that is really a problem, that there should be, you know, this objectivity um, that a lot of us don't believe actually ever existed and is really just a euphemism for straight white male opinions and belief systems and structures of power and perspectives for the last, you know, many centuries, right. <laughs> <laughs> frankly, we certainly, you know, get the critique occasionally as many journalism support organizations do that what we're doing is advocacy or we're encouraging journalists to dabble in advocacy or um, subjective notions. But really, for me, what always comes down to is helping journalists understand that what they are doing is already subjective. It's going back to that. There is no way to get your bias out of it. You can and should strive to make your journalism as fair and accurate and make your process as objective as possible. But that is about the process, like a scientific process. But that does not mean that, you know, you yourself are objective. We kind of get in this like backwards causation as journalists, where instead of thinking, I do good journalism, and thus I'm a good journalist, we kind of flip it and think I'm a good journalist, so my journalism must be good. And that isn't always the case if we are being, you know, really ignorant of the communities that we work with and assuming that our view is the objective one or that, you know, our newspapers or broadcast stations view is the objective one. It's it's really about like instituting humility along the journalistic process, I think. Um, and I have a quick anecdote that I, that I think really like gets at this. A journalist friend of mine um, several years ago now, since I've been telling this anecdote, um, about a local push for um, the institution of a um, overdose prevention site that has yet to come to pass in Philadelphia. There's been, you know, years that an organization has been trying to open one. We have an unfortunate substance use um, problem in Philadelphia. The organization had done some research that found that they had been calling it a safe injection site. That had been kind of the, the phrase du jour at the time. Um, and using that term had turned off neighbors from accepting it into their neighborhood um, and had actually turned communities off from allowing the nonprofit to run there. Um, but they found that overdose prevention site made them much more interested in having it because it was clear about what they were looking to do. The objective was to 
prevent overdoses, underlining that cause and just taking away the word injection, which, you know, brings about lots of negative feelings for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons, um, really helped them. Um, and they put out research from that. And so, you know, they started using um, that phrase. And I was talking to a writer um, who was covering this at the time. They said, well, we're sticking with safe injection site because that's what the city calls it. And that's the most neutral version because that's what the city calls it. You know, the advocacy group wants us to use overdose prevention site. If we use that, then we'll be biased. And I was like, well, think about it this way. You have been given information that shows that if you use one of these terms, a neighborhood will be more likely to allow this site into their neighborhood, or you can choose the term that will make them less likely to include this site in their neighborhood. Regardless of your opinion of whether they should or should not, either selection is having an impact on public view of this issue. There is no neutral. Once there is information and research that goes into either side, neither of those is a neutral term anymore. You know, he kind of was like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like, just because somebody has, you know, has decided that one is a positive or has found out that one is a positive does not mean that the other one is neutral. It actually means that there's an opportunity cost and that is now a negative. And so you're actually making a choice either way. And so that's, you know, an anecdote that we use all the time of like opportunity costs with specific word choices has a huge impact whether you choose to acknowledge it or not. And what we we tend to assume that like the opposite of advocacy is neutrality. And that's just not the case. Exactly. Yes, exactly. You know, I was thinking the city is certainly advocating for its position uh, just as a police department is just as a corporation is just as a a community group is. Uh, Everybody's advocating for a specific position. But we do decide to name non-government entities or non-corporate entities as advocacy entities. And that is, again, a semantic that leads to consequences or certain outcomes. Oh, great example. Thank you for that. I, I like that anecdote. <laughs> I love that anecdote. That is so perfect. Real life anecdote that really illustrates a lot of points that I've always tried to make. You, know, you brought up so many good, so many things that I think are important. Um, but that idea of the objectivity was never aligned to a human. It's a process for a journalist who is seeking to inform and, and one sort of aside to that is I always think about objectivity versus the way we define journalism. And when you see like when a great journalist or a journalist considered great dies or retires, they held power to account. They afflicted the comfortable and comforted the afflicted. You know, those are not neutral statements. The way we describe great journalists are not n- neutral. The way we describe our vision of the best journalism is not neutral or not objective. It's it's holding power to account. It's the fourth estate, the voice of the people. So this idea of the process versus the person, it was never the person. It was the process. But you brought up some phrases and, and some examples of the idea of, uh, of what makes journalism. When you're doing content creation and informing, are you doing journalism? Are you informing? Are you um, being precise and accurate? Are you being fair? Those are spaces or words or concepts that maybe better define journalism than objectivity. Looking around at Reframe and in your work, those words come up, precision, accuracy, et cetera. Yeah, that, that idea of um, afflicting the comfortable is not a neutral value. And we still, for some reason, ascribe to that that is a neutral value, but also we are not doing that. We are often aligning ourselves with institutions and people in power um, without even realizing it because of the kind of flip side of that coin of what is objectivity and what is advocacy has turned into, okay, well, if you're going against these people, then you're advocacy. So we can't be critical of this, that, or the other thing, because that would be, you know, not the voice of the people. For me, like the the process of creating journalism and being precise and being accurate in this day and age is so much about what we choose to amplify. 
And I think that is not necessarily a traditional journalistic value in previous iterations of news cycles just 15 years ago the amount of content that was available was so much less. There were so fewer outlets. It was a much less of a fire hose aimed at your face every single morning and that you were scrambling to get your you know, content or article or what have you seen. Um, there were more people tuning into the TV news to broadcast news and primetime news um, and radio. And, you know, go back 50 years and it was even, you know, fewer than that, of course. As our outlets, as our access to information has broadened, the game is now about amplification of our of our work to get it in front of more people. Um, and so what then becomes the most important for a user is not necessarily the same things that we would have thought were important maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, and what I mean by that is if, if we're still talking about reporting on, for instance, politics as the balance of both parties, of including both parties in the article, and that is objective journalism, and that is balanced, and that is fair. And we are ignoring when one party is using that time and that amplification to spread misinformation or to perpetuate lies, then we are no longer understanding the weight of our words and the power of our journalism, um, because we have sacrificed the actual news value of information, what we hope people will get from the information, civic engagement, understanding of the world around them, being able to tie in their personal lives to the society that they are and communities that they are part of and make decisions based on that information. We have sacrificed all of that, the goal of journalism, in order to stick to this idea of fairness and balance that like balance just on its face of literally just like if there are two parties, we must include them both at the same level without evaluating the content of their statements. And when Right now, when we have so much content out there, we can no longer rely on or just fall back on that idea of elevating all conversations to the same level because only some are going to get heard. And thus, an individual is not getting the full story of the news around them. Um, they're going to get fed much more lies and misinformation if one party is constantly throwing that into the public discourse and we are just, oh, well, we have to be balanced. Here you go. Providing a platform for misinformation is not accuracy. It's stenography. Just because you're, you know, saying what somebody else has said does not mean that you are helping them paint an accurate portrayal of what is going on. Something I always think about um, when it comes to this conversation is a few years ago, the um, BBC changed its uh, climate coverage and uh, how they were going to speak about climate change. And Basically, we're saying, you know, we're no longer going to be amplifying the voices of climate deniers as the equal balance side. And I'll get the quote wrong because I'm not as familiar with soccer clubs as I should be. But the quote from the editor was basically like, if Manchester wins and another team loses and Liverpool loses, we're not going to quote Liverpool saying they won. We wouldn't do that on a normal day. So why would we do that about climate change? You can apply that principle to a lot of content um, that journalists are producing. I first want to say I've heard the fire hose analogy before with relation, but you have said it best. My favorite, a fire hose aimed at your face every single morning. That is just, thank you for that. That was the best. Um, but you're right. This idea of precision instead of stenography and this idea of, uh, you know, that is doing journalism and there is an evaluative aspect to that work. We've talked a lot about newsrooms, journalists, newsroom leaders, um, but I, I noticed, um, you know, you're addressing at Reframe systems, individuals, etc. What can community members, non-journalists do to help improve the way we 
think about stories the way we think about communities and, and information. There is so much that uh, that community members and audience members, which are, you know, two different populations a lot of the time can do. True. Good point. Try to reach out to the journalists in your area as much as possible to provide feedback um, and emailing journalists to give them feedback on their work. There's you know, uh, a woeful gap between what journalists know about the journalistic process versus what people who are not in journalism know about the journalistic process. And we as an industry do not do a good job of educating people about what that looks like. And so I do think it's on journalists to bring that to the table, to explain to the sources they're using how their words will be used and to let them know when the story is published and to understand that like, you know, your your quotes might not end up in the story. That's, you know, a complaint that we hear all the time of like, why wasn't I included? There's so many mysteries there. Uh, but if you do, you know, happen to be in the position of a source, um, to ask as many questions as you have of, of the reporter, of not only how your words will be used um, and, you know, what different terms like on and off the record mean and those things, but also about the topic. If they're researching it, you're having a conversation. This is a two-way street. It, it doesn't have to be a one-way. Thank you to my guest, Aubrey Nagel, editor of Reframe at Resolve Philly. You can find out more about Reframe and all the services it offers at reframe.resolvephilly.org or on Twitter at Reframe News. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.